the words of a, an old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? If, if I was there, if you were there in this scene that we have in our chapter, in our text, who would we be? What would we be doing? It is Thursday night, coming into Friday morning, Good Friday. The Lord Jesus has spent that time of in agony of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You, you remember in verse 36 how he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus said, Lord, the, the road ahead is hell. And if there is any other way, if there's any shortcut, if there's any detour that will bring salvation for your people and glory to your name, Lord, let it be that way. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And what was God's answer to him, to that prayer? God's answer was that he would continue on the way of suffering to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and for me to the very last drop. The answer of God to his prayer was the brutal arrest that he was dragged before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the church council. It's all the leaders of the Old Testament church. If in, in terms of this congregation, it would be the church council, the leadership and in the Sanhedrin, because it's not just a local congregation, but it's national, the, the priests and the elders and the scribes are the, the rich and the powerful and the influential in the church and in society. The priests had a lot of influence, spiritually, religiously, but also in contact with the Romans. And they got a lot of wealth out of their status and their position. The elders were leading citizens who had similar wealth and power and influence. The scribes would be like professors of theology, for instance, people that spent all their time in the halls of power and influence in the church. So we have all the power of the Old Testament church and of Israelite society gathered together in the wee hours of Friday mornings, between midnight and six o'clock. And they're gathered to do one thing, to crush the Christ, to crush the Lord Jesus, to crush the Messiah, because he is a threat to them. He is a threat to their power and to their status and to their wealth. He is a threat to the stability, which gives them power and status and wealth. He's a threat to the stability of their relationship with the Romans. And so he has to go. Now they already know where they want to end up with this. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, two days before the Passover, they had already decided to arrest him by stealth and kill him. That's the goal. That's the end game. They know exactly the outcome they're looking for. They just need to find a way to get there. And they think that they're in charge. They think that they're driving this, but they're not. Look back at verse 1 again, if you have your Bible handy. They said, we won't do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
Well, it's Passover Friday. It is the day of the feast. They're not determining the timeline here. God is. God is driving this. And if you, if you see Peter here huddling in the courtyard, and then you read what he writes many years later to, to the church, or sorry, what he, what he says to the church on Pentecost Sunday, Acts 2.23, he says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This happened because God said it would happen. It happened in the way God ordained it would happen. It happened according to the timeline that God had planned from eternity. That's what Peter understands on Pentecost Sunday, but right here he does not yet see this truth. You see there in verse 54, Peter had followed at a distance. He's, he wants to see what's going to happen, but he's, he's not right next to Jesus. He's not doing what he said he would. I will stand with you till death. I will die with you. He's, he's hanging back there and protecting himself, but he still is curious to know what's going to happen. And so he follows into the courtyard, and he's there warming himself at the fire with the guards. And so you would, you would have in a large palatial residence as of the high priest. It would be a very fancy house, a mansion. And you would, let's say we're in the courtyard right here. There would be a, a gate, a bigger gate for vehicle traffic and a smaller man gate out to the street. And then on this side and behind me and on that side, it would be, of course, rectangular or square, would be archways and openings and doorways and windows into the various rooms of this house. And so, so Peter is in the courtyard with the fire. It's cold. It's probably 5, 10 degrees at night. It's a little bit chilly. He's warming himself. And, and Jesus is inside, but we know from other gospels that he can see Peter. He can look through the window and Peter can see him. And he's sitting with the guards. You know, we, 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 like to, we like to talk about Peter and his denial and how he's impetuous, and Peter often gets a, a bad rap. Remember that Mark is most probably the apostolic testimony of Peter, recorded by Mark. And so he doesn't uh, try to make himself look good. He, he admits what he's done. But we must say that by sitting with the guards, he's being incredibly courageous and, and brave. Because back in the garden, he took his sword and he chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now he's sitting with the high priest's servants in the courtyard. He's probably trying to cover his face because if they recognize him, he's in trouble. So it's a courageous thing to do to be sitting here with the guards. And that probably, that fear of being found out, and, and also the fear of seeing how Jesus is treated, of course, helps very much Peter to make those decisions he makes in denying the Lord, which he eventually does. As we go on to, to verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council, and the word there is Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. You notice there in, in verse 50. Five, as in verse 53, the chief priests are first. They're driving this. They're the ones that are taking leadership here in trying to kill Jesus. And there are 
there's something appropriate about that because he is the Lamb of God who will shed his blood for the remission of sins. And who kills the sacrifice? Who kills the Passover lamb? It is the priests. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it. But they want to kill the Lamb of God. It's the chief priests. But for them, they feel threatened by him. And rightly so. We've got the entire book of Hebrews, which explains how with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the entire priestly system came crashing down, destroyed, rendered useless and meaningless. And somehow, perhaps, they sense that threat in our Lord. Whatever the reason, they're out to get him. They're seeking testimony against him, verse 55. First, they made the decision to kill Jesus. Now they're looking for grounds. It's not a good way to do things. It's not a good way to do things, to make your decision, then try and find reasons why you made that decision. That's a bad way to live. Usually when we make a decision and we act, and then later on we try to justify it, usually that's sin, or at least foolishness. And it's often driven by Satan, not by the wisdom that comes from above. So they're trying to find some kind of ground to kill him. They find none. And it is not for lack of trying. They try and try. The language here, the Greek language, uses verbal tenses, which make it clear that it's, it's an ongoing thing. They're, they're trying every which way to find a reason to condemn Jesus to death. And then look at verse 56. Well, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You know, they could have just paid an assassin and had him killed. But there's something about the devil, there's something about those driven by Satan, there's something about evil men that prefers to do wickedness with the outward appearance of righteousness and justice. That's the devil's favorite way of operating, that he makes it look good. It looks like it's lawful. It looks like it's proper. It looks like it's the right thing to do. It's a whitewashed sepulcher, and inside it is full of dead man's bones. That's his preferred modus operandi, his way of operating. Now, Christ is innocent. And they have nothing on him, no matter how hard they try. And so there's this, this final attempt that we see in verse 58, if you're following along in your, your Bible. We, we, we heard him say, says these couple of false witnesses, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Well, if you, if you have your Bible handy, you turn to John chapter 2, verse 19. You'll see exactly what Jesus said. They're twisting his words. He didn't say what they said, he said. John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he said. They're twisting his words. That's what false witness is. And they add something. They say, I will destroy the temple. That is made with hands. That's important. Because 
the Old Testament language of mocking idols often calls attention to the fact that idols are made with hands. Idols are the work of man's hands. So when you say something is made with hands, it's human made. It's not worthy of worship. It is false. It has to do with false worship. And so this language they're using is calculated to make Jesus look like a blasphemer, to make Jesus say, listen, this temple is made with hands. It's idolatrous. It's false. It's useless. And then they say he, he said he would replace it with another not made with hands. And these guys, they're the cream of the crop when it comes to theology. They should know the scriptures. They should know the prophecies, the ancient prophecies. They should know Daniel chapter 2, that dream of Nebuchadnezzar and that great statue which represents all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of man. They should know that in Daniel chapter 2, how it ends where that rock is cut out without hands. And it comes crashing into that idol, that great statue, and it destroys all the kingdoms and the power and the glory of man. And then it grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole world. They should, they should know that. But they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about murdering the Messiah. And yet even here, their testimony did not agree. There are things which aren't matching up as they're called in one by one. And so finally, verse 60, after their best shot has failed, and over and over and over throughout all of the accounts of the Lord Jesus' days and hours leading up to the crucifixion, the scriptures make clear from a hundred different angles that the Lord is without sin and totally innocent. And finally, the, the high priest is frustrated. Evil men, when they make false accusations, they want those accusations to stick, or at least they want, you, they want to get a rise out of you. They want you to start expostulating and, and, and defending yourself. But look at verse 61. The high priest says, why, why aren't you talking? Why aren't you answering these terrible and serious accusations? But he, verse 61, remained silent and made no answer. This was ordained hundreds of years ago. This was ordained in the words of God through the prophet Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Everything Jesus does in his entire life on this earth is deliberately fulfilling Scripture. Now, Peter, the same Peter who's just watching from a distance and ready to deny the Lord Jesus three times, this same Peter in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about this scene. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Look at Jesus here. God calls you to be like him, to act like him, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. That's what he calls you and me to do. When vile and false accusations are leveled 
against us, we say, I will not dignify those vile accusations with a reply. But I submit to God's judgment. I have a clean conscience. And when you have a clean conscience and a clear conscience, you don't need to sit there arguing and fighting and getting all wound up. You don't have to fight for yourself because God is your witness. And so he remains silent in the face of false accusations. And then, and then the high priest says this in verse 61. He asked him again, are you the Christ? And of course, Christ is Messiah, the anointed. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And the Son of the Blessed is a, is a, is a term which refers to God. Are you the Son of God? You know, what Jesus answers here, they knew right away what he was saying. They knew right away. If you, if you open your Bible with me to Daniel chapter 7, and you look at verse 13, this is the background to what Jesus is saying, and they knew very well what he was, what he was referring to. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And evoking that ancient prophecy, Jesus says, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the son of the living God. I am. And you will see the ancient prophecies fulfilled in my person. You will see the son of man, me, seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Christ preaches the gospel to the Old Testament church leadership. And they should have trembled. But instead, they are blind with hate and with envy. Look at their reaction to verse 63. The, the high priest tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Here's the greatest leader of God's people. And they're sitting in judgment over him who is the truth itself. And they've thrown every lie at him and no lie sticks. And so in the end, he is condemned not for any evil or not according to any false accusation. He is condemned in the end for the truth. The truth is condemned for being true. This is a massive failure, a massive catastrophic failure of the entire Old Testament church from Genesis 3 on. The Old Testament church has been waiting for the Messiah, longing for the coming of the Messiah, living for the coming of the Christ. They've been expecting it and praying for it and working for it and, and, and waiting, and they've heard so many prophecies about it. And, and when he comes, they ought to embrace him and worship him. But instead, they receive him as an enemy. 
He threatens their comfort. He threatens their self-righteousness. He threatens their status. He threatens their wealth. He threatens their way of life. And they say, forget it. He's not worth the cost. He must be destroyed. Look how when they condemn the Lord of life to death, look how they treat him. Look at that. Look at that in verse 65. They begin to spit in him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the gods received him with blows. This is the Lord of glory. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. This is the one who, in whom all things hold together. This is the one, the Lord, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, who gives breath to the men who spit on him, who gives the beating of the heart to those who punch him and, and beat him and hurt him. The creator is attacked by his own creatures and he simply submits. All he would have to do is look at them and they would be undone. But once again, the Lord Jesus fulfills the Holy Scripture, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Does it bother you when you read those words about what these men are doing to our Lord Jesus Christ? This is you, and this is me. Every time we refuse to bow the knee and to worship, every time we embrace sin, we spit in the face of the Son of God. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was. I betrayed him. I ran from him. I abandoned him. I sat there silently like Peter, afraid to call out injustice because it would cost me too much. I was there, and it was my sin which sat in judgment over the judge of all the earth. It is my sin which condemns him for being the Christ. It is my sin which calls the Holy One a blasphemer. It is my sin which judges the innocent to be the guilty one. It is my sin which condemns the author of life. To death. It is my sin which spits on him. It is my sin which strikes him and mocks him. It is my sin which beats him and bruises him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was there. A believer. There's more. There is gospel here. There is good news, and the good news is this, that in Christ, I am not my sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and there he stands in our text. 
He stands in my place. He bears my guilt. He is judged and condemned for my sins. Jesus fulfills the ancient prophecy, Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And this is the sure promise of the gospel to you, believer. That promise is sealed onto you by holy baptism. That Christ died, he suffered and died in my place. So with this gospel, with this good news, there is an urgent call to believe. There is an urgent call to faith. There are two types of people in the world, either those who are part of that group which judges the truth and finds it guilty. Or that other part of the human race who looks at this this text we have before us and sees the truth being judged for you. You either judge the truth or the truth is judged for you. The time is short, brother and sister. He is coming again, not in humiliation, but in glory. He comes to judge the living and the dead. That day is rushing towards us through history. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the judgment of truth? Careless sinner, you can mock, you can despise, you can ridicule, you can, you can ignore, you can lash out at the Christ. Or when the gospel is being mocked, when the Lord is being ridiculed, you can stand by silently to protect your interests. If that's your choice, know that judgment is coming for you. There's only one way forward for the believer, and that is to embrace Christ and his sufferings. To embrace Christ in his sufferings. Christ shows us the way to glory that he who would save his life will lose it, and that he who loses his life for my sake shall save it. We must die to sin. We must die to self. We must take up our cross and follow him at any cost. If we're reviled and falsely accused, if we're stripped of worldly goods and opportunities, of reputation and dignity, of freedom and health, of family and of life itself, the believer says, I will give up what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. Christ knows, brother and sister, that the way of the cross is hard. He knows because he walked it ahead of us. He knows the pain of the ridicule, the accusations, and the unfairness, and the injustice, and the pain, and the loss, and the loneliness, and the hurt. He knows that the way of the cross is hard, but it is 
the way, the only way to glory. This is how we win, by losing. This is how we are exalted, by humbling ourselves under the almighty hand of God. This is how we are raised up by being cast down. This is how we live, by dying. And in the power of Christ, we walk in the footsteps of Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the call of Christ to you and to me this morning. And in his power, we can face anything. We can deal with anything. We can not just survive, but thrive, no matter how much we are called to endure. Because we believe that already in this life, the Lord will show his goodness, his protection. We wait for the Lord. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The Lord is faithful. Why then be afraid? Take courage, for his steadfast love is sure. Wait for the Lord. His mercy shall endure. Amen.